0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our Christmas series today, Christmas, Hype or Hope? With a message entitled, The Hope and Hype of Government. So let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: We have all had conversations in which we've complained about the government. It's not without reason. While the Bible makes it clear that governments exist by the will of God, and you can read about that in Romans chapter 13, verses 2 and 3 says, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment is God appoints governments, and might I say, no matter how bad the government, and yet the alternative, which is anarchy, is a great deal worse, for whenever there's anarchy, human flourishing ends. Furthermore, the Bible makes it clear that government is not only appointed by God, but it is appointed for a very specific purpose. 1 Peter 2.14 says that one of the primary roles of government is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Well, another way of saying that is that government is appointed by God to enforce righteousness. Let's go back to the beginning of our Bible. After sin entered the human race, the very next generation had already experienced murder. And the impulse to do evil has become powerful and needs to be forcibly restrained. The situation before the universal flood had become so desperate precisely because there was no recognized legitimate government, but only a series of powerful warlords who oppressed people for their own gain. And after the flood, God makes a promise. It's a covenant with the human race. I'm reading Genesis 9 verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That is, God would find a way to prevent the impulse of human sin to reach such a crescendo that would necessitate another universal flood. And with that, the book of Genesis leads us to the account of Babel. At that time, one universal civilization ruled by one government, a government that wanted to build a tower that would reach to the heavens and so proclaim its leaders to be gods. Such unbridled powers, not ideal for government. We've all heard the saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Had the experiment of Babel been allowed to continue, human life would have been as cheap as when the warlords roamed the earth before the flood. And so God acts and confuses the language of the people of Babel, scatters them throughout the earth. The world after Babel would be governments to be sure, but no government would rule the entire earth. Competition between governments, yep, it would surely result in war and mistrust, but would also prevent a super society from emerging, a society that would trample on the rights of all without a voice being allowed to rise up in opposition. And furthermore, competition between societies would also allow for persecuted people to flee from one nation to the other, and would provide, at least in some situation, a measure of protection. And there, I think, is the picture of the hope and hype of government. The hope is that, as Peter said, governments would perform their obligation under God to restrain evil behavior, but also to promote good behavior. Government is God's means to keep sin at bay, and in that sense, it's a great blessing. You know, years ago, I was invited by a police officer to join him on a ride-along. He simply observed him in his work. It was an eye-opening experience. He had the duty of patrolling an especially violent neighborhood, and on one occasion, I watched him tackling a man in a convenience store because that man had a knife out and he was threatening a woman. I watched him enter a home with a loud, out-of-control party going on violence. And to bring order to that, he had to call on the help of other officers the entire night. was just dangerous. But that man is an agent of an authority instituted by God to restrain evil, to encourage good behavior. See, government not only restrains the man holding a knife to a woman in a convenience store. Government also restrains the thief, the stock trader who illegally manipulates the market the person who harasses his neighbor, as well as protects the person who's needy. Government ensures the economy runs well, resulting in good for all who want to work hard and care for their families. Government protects workers from unjust employers, and vice versa. Government ensures the good order of society, making sure the weak are protected from the unjust actions of the strong. Good government overrules the law of evolution, where only the strong can survive. At least that's the theory. But as we all know, even though it's the role of government to protect from evil, it's also true that government itself is not immune from evil. Fallen human beings, some grasping for power and advantage over others, often gravitate towards government. And when they do, they do great harm. And that's the explanation for ruthless governments that make life miserable for so many. And this then is the hope and hype of government. The hope that government would restrain wickedness and promote well-being of all. And the hype that government becomes an agent of wickedness, promoting only the well-being of those who are in power. And that's where the Bible gives hope. Isaiah 9, 6-7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice the thought, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. That is, the Messiah to come is a governor, or to be more precise, he's a king. He will govern the earth. Indeed, his government will increase in size as it goes along and will never cease to expand. This increase of government, because it will be perfect government, will also be attended by the increase of peace. There's going to be no end of peace. See, I contrast that to our present circumstances in which, at least, I think the case can be made, quite positively, that the world knows only peace in this sense. It's the calm that exists before the next war breaks out. But even so, the Bible does promise that there is one coming who will sit on David's throne. He will establish that throne for all time, and from that throne, his kingdom will encompass the earth, and that his throne will never be corrupt, but rather founded on justice and on righteousness forever. And I know that for those who have never heard it before, this is one of the central promises of the Bible upon which our faith rests. We believe that one is none other than Jesus. Where does that idea come from? Well, the answer is it comes from an incident in David's life recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is Israel's second king, and he's markedly better than the first one. And in time, David managed to defeat his enemies and establish the borders of the kingdom in security and give the nation peace from constant wars. And furthermore, David had established Jerusalem as the capital of his nation, and so he had fulfilled the promise from so many years earlier that the scepter would never depart from the tribe of Judah. David was from Judah. But David thought there was a problem. Although he had built a palace for himself, the tabernacle, the place where God was to be worshipped, was in a tent. He was going to change all that and build a beautiful temple but God sent him a word through a prophet, a man named Nathan. He would not be permitted to build such a temple. His son would do it. And then comes a fascinating promise. David, you will not build God a house, but amazingly, God's going to build you a house. Your house is the kingly line of David, which will endure forever. And eventually, this kingdom would take over the world. Eventually, The longed-for Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, he's going to be one of your descendants, David. He's going to sit on your throne. He's going to rule not just Israel, but eventually he will rule the entire earth. And unlike the dreams of the rulers of Babel, this kingdom will not be based on oppression and violence, but on righteousness, and peace will flourish throughout the earth. And That's what Isaiah meant when he said... Unto us a child is given, a son is born, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Eventually, a descendant of David will come. He will be the Messiah. He will sit on David's ancient throne. And when that happens, perfect righteousness will reign throughout the earth. And you have to imagine that each time in the history of the Old Testament when a new king would come from David's line, that is, the old king would die and the next one would come and be anointed as king, the people would have wondered, can this be the one? Can this be the anointed one, the Messiah? Could we be the generation that are going to see the kingdom of God reign over the whole earth? Maybe we're living in the last time. Surely this is it. So here's the question. What do you think? Was this a legitimate hope for Israel to have? Or is this all just a bunch of hype? See, don't you see, depending on your outlook, you can make a very good case for either one of these. This might be legitimate hope, or it could all be hype leading to nothing at all. Which one is it?
0: Back to the Bible, Canada is committed to the message of hope found in Jesus Christ. Jesus came with the grace of forgiveness and the truth which transforms. And your support enables Back to the Bible Canada to sow this biblical truth in a spiritual famine. By your prayers and generosity, God's word grants light and life to families under stress, seniors isolated in apartments, truckers alone on the road, unbelievers whose hearts and minds are in turmoil. Now the month of December marks year end for charitable donations. This year, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are looking to raise $517,000 to reach our year end budget. We hope you'll stand with us with your year end gifts. This goal has been set not as an achievement, but as preparation and promise. To give your gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: Those of us who know the history of the kings of Judah, we know that with a few exceptions, such as Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah, you know, a great many of those kings were not just a disappointment. The great many of them were wicked, evil men who trampled on the rights of the poor and promoted idolatry, as well as men who through the lack of wisdom did not grow the kingdom of David, but they watched as the kingdom became increasingly smaller. And the skeptic, this was all hype. Nothing what the men and women of faith dreamed of seemed likely to happen. And it's here that we do well to consider the words of Isaiah the prophet. You know, if you don't know, let me give you a little bit of background on this remarkable man. The very first sentence of his book, the book of Isaiah, begins and gives context to everything that follows. Isaiah 1 verse 1. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So would you notice that Isaiah prophesied and saw visions from God during the reign of four kings? The first one he mentions is Uzziah, that's the king who became a leper. Uzziah would have begun his reign in 767 B.C. and then reigned until 740 B.C. And the last of the kings was King Hezekiah. This was a king who I think was the most righteous king in Judah's history. He reigned from 715 to 686 B.C. So we can see that the four kings that Isaiah mentions covers a period of time from 767 to 686 BC, that's 81 years. Now that doesn't mean that Isaiah prophesied for 81 years, I mean, he might have begun halfway through the reign of Uzziah and so forth, but we do know that he prophesied for a long time. He saw a lot of changes, he saw the rise and fall of righteousness. None of the four kings he witnessed in office, and might I add, the four kings he had access to, none of these four men was the long-expected Messiah. So we might then wonder if Isaiah became disenchanted, or that he was losing hope, himself wondering whether his belief in the rise of perfect government and perfect world righteousness was simply hype and not a solid hope. And here we do well to remember what Isaiah says. For a very long period of time, as kings came and went, all during that time, God was giving him visions, words that came directly from the throne of God. Now, of course, uh, we can't in a short period of time that we have simply study the entire book of Isaiah. It's 66 chapters long. But I do think it's important for us to understand that Isaiah is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. That is, when the New Testament authors who were attempting to help us understand the life and the ministry and the significance of Jesus, when they were writing of Jesus who is called the Christ or the Messiah, the one destined to rule the earth. These writers were continually referring back to the visions of Isaiah the prophet because they believed that he helped us to understand the significance of the Jesus event. So for our purposes, since we're speaking about the hope of a government that will finally rule the world in righteousness, let's restrict our study to Isaiah chapter 11. I begin with verse 1 there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, in order to understand that, we need context. So, let's get back to Isaiah chapter 10. In verses 33 and 34, it says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one." So let me explain that. Isaiah is portraying the destruction of arrogant human evil and arrogant human governments. All these are going to come down like trees in a forest fall down before the axe of the woodsman, or in our terms, like a clear-cut logger cutting down a forest. Now, keep that image in mind and go back to Isaiah 11, verse 1, because there, astonishingly, Isaiah is speaking about the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David is the king from whose descendants will come the perfect king who's going to rule the earth. But now, as Isaiah speaks of a great disruption among the trees, and by the way, the context, well, that's the Babylonian Empire. They're going to cut down one civilization after another. And the house of David or the kingdom of David or the hope of the Messiah coming from David's throne, that also will be cut down along with everything else. Nothing's going to remain but a stump. So concentrate on that image alone, because it would seem that Isaiah thought that the hope of the Messiah on David's throne was nothing but hype. I mean, after all, not only are the nations around Judah going to fall, Judah is going to fall. The kingdom of David is going to be chopped down. I mean, those of you who know your history are going to note that this prophecy was literally fulfilled when the Babylonians in the year 586 BC broke into Jerusalem. King Zedekiah was the king on David's throne. He tried to escape. He was captured. His sons were slaughtered before his eyes. That was the last thing that he saw. And then they blinded him by gouging out his eyes, and they brought him blind and in chains to Babylon where he died. Isaiah predicted all of that. The house of David would be reduced to a stump in the forest. Was it all hype? Not at all. Notice what the text says next. A shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. Now, where I live on the west coast of Canada, I mean, we have plenty of forests, and I've seen this a lot. A felled great tree with a stump and then a shoot growing out from what appears to have been a dead tree. But it wasn't dead. It was alive. Back at Isaiah 7:14, Isaiah spoke of a virgin giving birth and bearing a son. And then in Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be born. The government will rest on his shoulders. And now in Isaiah 11, Isaiah is even more specific, saying that from the stump of Jesse, the father of David, would come a shoot or a branch, and that this shoot would bear fruit. Look next what Isaiah says about this child, born of a virgin, coming from the kingly line of David, Isaiah 11, 2 to 5, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What's Isaiah describing? Well, he's contrasting the way other governments have reigned to the way this king will reign. This king will make decisions not on the basis of rumor or on the basis of personal advantage, but on the basis of righteousness, and he shall, says Isaiah, judge with equity. And the wicked, says Isaiah, will have every reason to fear this man. Well, that's justice and righteousness, but what about peace? Isaiah eleven six 6-9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the wean child shall put out his hand on the adder's den." They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, enforcing justice, striking the earth with a rod when it rebels, bringing about global peace, what are we talking about? Is this a picture of heaven? See, I don't think so. In fact, if you go ahead to the end of the book of Isaiah, in chapter 65, verse 20, listen to these words. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Well, look, no one dies in heaven at all, nor are there sinners dying there who are thought accursed. No, no, Isaiah is not describing heaven. He's describing a coming time, which the Bible will later call the millennium. This will be a time in which the inhabitants of the earth will be governed by the Messiah, and the Messiah will not allow wickedness to flourish, but he will punish all injustice perfectly. This will be a government that we've all so desperately been hoping for, and that is the hope of Christmas, or is it just the hype? I mean, after all, wasn't the one who was born of a virgin the one who is of the house and lineage of David, the one whom the angels sang, and the one whom the shepherds and the magi worship, isn't he also the one who with great hope drove out demons and healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, who fed the poor, who raised the dead, preached the coming of the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, yeah, Jesus acted just like the Messiah that was predicted in Isaiah. But wasn't he also the one when hope was flourishing Wasn't he the one that was crucified on a cross when his enemies, the wicked of the earth, conspired against him, overwhelmed him, and nailed him to a tree? Wasn't it all hype in the end? Well, Isaiah in Isaiah 53 predicted both the sufferings of the Messiah, that he would be crushed, but also that he would see life again. This was accomplished when he was raised from the dead. And now before he returns and sits on David's throne and governs the world from Jerusalem, he's calling men and women to repent of their sins and surrender to him. Now is the day to repent for the kingdom of heaven is surely coming. That is to say, the resurrection of Jesus tells us it's not hype at all. Evil oppressive governments and terrorists and cruel dictators will not have the last word. No, no, Jesus will reign. That is our hope and it's
0: legitimate because the tomb is empty. Thanks for your message, John. Let me. Let me, though, ask you a personal question. How do you keep in balance in your own life that the tragedy we watch around us every day and the hope that you describe?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, we have to be realistic and look at the tragedies that we face and see the great suffering that people go through and, and all the evil injustice that is being done, the wars that are being waged, all of that, I mean, gives reasons to crush our hope. Uh, if, uh, if we did not have, Uh, the, the coming of Jesus into the world, I would have no reason for hope at all. My only hope that I have is based on the truth that he is who he said he is, and the promises that he has made
0: are indeed coming true. I believe it and know it to be the case. Hence, I have hope. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Christmas, Hyper Hope, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Christmas comes the same time every year, whether we're ready or not. We can't put the season on snooze until we're in a cheery mood. Christmas doesn't wait. It comes to find us where we are, as we are. This year, Christmas arrives to a troubled world. How can we celebrate Christmas in days of tension? It's in times such as these that Christmas is celebrated best. God sent His Son as light and rescue in days of despair and darkness. The Father didn't wait for the world to improve. He sent Jesus as help and hope for us all. In troubled times, we don't delay Christmas, we run to it. That's our prayer for you this season. On behalf of the whole team here at Back to the Bible Canada, Merry Christmas. Jesus has come and He remains Emmanuel despite difficult days.